Turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. Hebrews, chapter 11. George Mueller wrote a, uh, or in George Mueller's biography, I should say, it was wrote of him, nothing is marked in George Mueller to the very day of his death than this, that he looked to God and leaned on God and that he felt himself to be nothing and God to be everything. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to inland China, said, All God's giants have been weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned on God being with them. William Carey was a a cobbler by trade. He was a a shoe salesman, a shoemaker. Most churches in his day believed that the Great Commission had only been given to the apostles, and thus they had no vision for converting the heathens, if you will. But Carey came to this revolutionary idea that foreign missions were the central responsibility of the church. And he wrote a book promoting that thesis, and he spoke to a group of ministers challenging them to the task of missions. And in that talk, he now he made famous the now famous statement, I should say, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. The mission he established in India, by the way, was plagued by huge problems. Not at least was the uh, was an associate who mismanaged mission funds and made many enemies because of unpaid debts. Not exactly what you want to do in your first year in the mission field, but that's exactly what happened. Yet during his years in India, this shoe cobbler translated the Bible into three languages, supervised and edited translations into 36 other languages, produced a massive Bengali English dictionary, pioneered social reform, planted churches, engaged in medical relief, founded the Agricultural and Horticultural Society of India, founded a college and other schools, and served as a professor at three different schools. A shoe cobbler. That's who God used to accomplish all of that. He was a weak cobbler made strong through faith in a mighty God. Now, we pick up our story here this morning of great faith and great courage from our last time together, remember, in verses 30 and 31. We move now in this morning from the patriarchal period where we looked at Moses and Jericho and Rahab last time. Before that, we looked at Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and Joseph. But now we move from that to the promised land itself and to the early history of Israel, which would be the history of judges and the history of kings. And there are six men mentioned in verse 32 alone, and they're not in chronological order, but they were all men who accomplished great things for God because of their great faith. Now this morning we're going to do something a little different And that is, I want to read all of our verses together again. And then I want to pull out three points from those verses collectively instead of each one from each verse. But before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to bless our time together in his word.
Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, again for gathering these dear saints here together. I know, Lord, many are battling through different illnesses. I know, Lord, some have already begun to travel. I know, Lord, some are sick, as we prayed for earlier. Some are in the hospital. But, Father, I pray that you would be with us, those you've gathered here this morning, and give us open hearts and open minds to your wonderful truth. And that, Lord, we would not just be hearers of your word, as we pray often here, but doers of your word, that we would hear your message of truth, apply it to our own lives first, and then, Lord, uh, after we apply it to our lives, seek to glorify you through the way we apply it in our lives. Be with us now, Lord, in the time we have remaining in this hour, for your honor and for your glory. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, let's look at our uh, text here. He says, verse 32, he begins by saying, well, let's read all these together, I should say. What more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets. So he begins by stating, what more shall I say? Or Time will fail me if I try to explain each one of those. And I, he, this, uh, I'm believing now that the author of Hebrews must be a preacher because he's looking at these stories and going, if I, I could spend the next 45 minutes or 40 minutes on each one of these, beloved, and just walk these through. But he's saying, listen, we can gather the point that I want to make here that God would have me make through this text if I just kind of give you some key nuggets from these stories instead of each individual story. And so that's what we want to do again here this morning. He says, what more shall I say? For time will fail me. It's like when a pastor looks up and it's 1147 and he realizes he's on point one of a three-point sermon. And he's like, okay, I got I got to finish by 1155 so we get the last song in here so we can get everybody out. So somehow I got to make two points in seven and a half minutes and the longer I take to think about this, the, the clock is still going. So he feels this pressure. He knows he's got to finish. The congregation can sing that one last song and be done by noon. But because he doesn't have the time to tell the full story, he decides to mention only a few names in this period to make the point. Now, we look at these names and we think, well, David and Samuel, we can understand their names being in their great faith. These, they're pillars of faith. We know all about their lives. They stand head and shoulders above their contemporaries. These are men who walked by faith, and we know they did great things for God. There are whole chapters in the Bible about their lives. But who are these other men that are listed? And why did God pick them out? And why did he go from the period of Judges? For goodness sakes, Judges, not exactly a stellar time for Israel. As a matter of fact, what's the theme of Judges? Remember, we walked through Judges, I think it was a year or so ago. It might be longer than that. I'm older. And uh, remember the theme of, uh, of Judges is everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So why did he pick these men? What is it that he wants us to see in these lives that applies to us today? Well, we're about to find out. So, again, let's look at our first point here together. And, again, I want to read, I'm going to read all these again for you, then we'll come back to our first point. 
What more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, Women received back their dead by resurrection. And and uh, stop right there. It rattles off these amazing things that God accomplished through them. So in your notes here, point number one that I want you to take from those verses is that God uses ordinary men and women to accomplish extraordinary things for God. Ordinary men and women, God uses ordinary men and women to accomplish extraordinary things for God. So let's look at this. The first one that is a familiar name to us, remember, is Gideon. Now, Gideon, you can find Gideon's story in Judges chapter 6 and 7. And again, I'm not going to take you back there. If you want to go as we, as we go along, that's fine. But jot this down, Judges 6 and 7. Remember, the angel of the Lord came to him one day and said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now, remember, Gideon was hiding in a wine press at the time, right? You know, trying to separate the wheat and the chaff. And there was a reason for that. But he was hiding, not exactly what you'd expect from the mighty warrior, Gideon. The surprising word came again in the midst of the Midianites had the latest in warfare called camels. And they would come in and they would come right around harvest time. They'd come across the border and they would take all of the uh, harvest from the Israelites at harvest time, that camels would, you know, I mean, they would uh, rape, pillage, and plunder, take all the food, take it back, and leave them with virtually nothing. And this went on for years and years and years, and then the Israelites were actually hiding in caves. It was so bad. They had no answer for this. And again, so they'd plunder the land, get on their camels, ride out of town, and stay away again until next year. This happened year after year after year. So every year at harvest time, the Jews were losing everything they worked for because of this invasion. And the people of God, again, were reduced to living in caves because they were frightened of the mighty power of the Midianites. So in response to that, God raises up a judge, right? And a judge was like the leader. He not only, he not only handled civil disputes, disputes, he also handled things militarily. He was the leader. He was the commander, the general. And so he taps Gideon on the shoulder and says, You, mighty warrior hiding in the wine press, you are the one who's going to deliver my people from the Midianites. Now, the Lord is very clear on this point. Gideon, you're the man. You're the one. Matter of fact, he's so clear, he repeats it two or three times in Judges chapter 6 alone. It's you, Gideon, that I have chosen to accomplish these great things. So the showdown is all set between the men of Israel and the invading Midianites. They're gathered for battle. Gideon has a force of 32,000 going against the Midianites of 135,000 plus camels, the latest in military warfare. And then God comes to him and says, you got way too many men. We need to pare this thing down a little bit. We need to reduce the size of your force. You're not going to need 32,000 men. 
And finally, he reduces Gideon's army down to 300. 300 versus 135,000. Now, Gideon has no idea what he's supposed to do with 300 men. I'm sure he's thinking, I'll just hide in the hills. <laughs> Hope the Lord does something here because I don't have a plan. I didn't really have a plan when I had 32,000 men against 135,000. I have absolutely no plan now with 300 versus 135,000. But God intervenes and gives him these strange instructions for battle. Do you remember? He, you know what his armaments of battle will be? They're going to be pitchers of water, torches, and trumpets. Yeah, that's what God is going to use to battle the mighty Midianites. As strange as that may seem, Gideon doesn't argue, though, because his faith is strong. And you remember what happened. They maneuvered around the hills. They lit their torches, smashed the pitcher, blew the trumpets. The Midianites, in the pitch dark, thought this invading army of a huge force was coming around. They came out of their tents, off their bunks, if you will, swinging their swords, and they basically wiped each other out in the darkness of the night, fighting each other, thinking it was an invading force. And it was an incredible victory for the Israelites, all because of the great faith of Gideon. And he's in our hall of faith there, incidentally, if you think Gideon didn't have any faith. The next up is Barak. You can find Barak's story in Judges chapter 4. Now, Barak had 10,000 men going against the mighty Sisera. Sisera had even more advanced weaponry uh, than the Midianites. He actually had chariots. And God sent a message to Barak through a woman by the name of Deborah. Barak believed the message. He believed that God would give him the victory. Well, of course, the victory came, and it was an incredible victory. Barak trusted God by faith. Victory was achieved over a vastly superior force. Then we have Samson. Samson demonstrated great faith, great courage, incredible power. He never, ever feared going into a battle, no matter what the odds were against him, because he knew the Spirit of the Lord would come upon him and nothing could defeat him. He had great faith in that. He believed that God had called him to fight for Israel against the Philistines before he was even born. It was announced to his parents that that's what he was called to do. Even against unimaginable odds, one against a thousand. Even near the end of his life, after recovering strength from capture, he went into the Philistine temple and brought it all down on them and himself. His last courageous act of self-sacrificing faith. Remember, God had told his parents, he shall begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. And that's exactly what happened. He trusted that God would fulfill his promise. So he never feared in combat, never worried about what was going to happen to him, even against overwhelming forces against him. And that takes great faith. And because of that, he accomplished great things for God. Then we meet Jephthah. Now, Jephthah we find in Judges chapter 11. And Jephthah's great accomplishment by faith was his battle against the Ammonites and the Amorites. And another great victory through faith and courage of Jephthah. Then we leave the book of Judges and we go to First and Second Samuel because the next name on the list is David. Now, David has lots of exploits, lots of great things accomplished for God. Probably the one that we're most familiar with, though, is 
the story of David and Goliath when he was still a young man in 1 Samuel 17. David had such great courage and faith in God that as he faced the taunts of Goliath, he said that all the earth may know that there's a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into my hands. And indeed, God did as David was, uh, as David had claimed, he was able to kill Goliath with a slingshot and a smooth stone. What is it that gave this shepherd boy the runt of the litter of the boys, incidentally, that the courage to face a battle-hardened mercenary Philistine warrior that was gigantic. Once again, it is faith in God and his promises that enable this ordinary shepherd boy to accomplish great things for God. The next name is Samuel. Samuel was a great man of faith. Samuel stood for what he believed to be right against all threats, most of which came from his own people. But Samuel stood firm and he spoke the word of God even when he was facing hostile uh, reactions, even from the high priest Eli. He stood firm in the word of God at great personal cost, incidentally. All of that took great faith in God, but through Samuel's leadership, Israel became stronger and accomplished great things for God. Have you noticed the theme here? Lastly, we see the prophets, which take us to the end of the Old Testament. This would encompass all of them, the great prophets, the small prophets, the mighty prophets. Each are a powerful testimony of faith and courage, despite the great personal danger to themselves. They warned God's people, often ending in their own demise. You know what happened to almost all of the prophets? Yeah, they didn't. They didn't fare too well when they stood and told the truth of God's word. They don't, they don't live very long. Verses 33 to 35, again, gave us some examples of the great accomplishments through faith. And you can see in each of these descriptions things that the judges did, things that David did, things that Samuel did. We can even see Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego in there. We can see Daniel in there. We've got all the great prophets, even some of the minor ones. He's lumping them together for the interest of time. We see David conquering kingdoms. And we can think of David establishing justice and peace in the land. We can think of David inheriting the promises of 2 Samuel 7 and the whole Davidic covenant. And so he says, the author says, by faith, all of these things were done. What is his point? Why these? He wants you to know that it was not their military skill that they accomplished great things for God. It was not that they were the most, they were the best at military strategy. It was not their powerful intellect or their persuasive people skills. It was God that enabled all of these men to accomplish great things. How did he do that? through their faith in God and his promises. What a radically different attitude that is 
than what we find in the world today. The world thinks that everybody ought to have faith in themselves. The point of the author here is that these things were not done by human strategy. They weren't done by human skill. They didn't conjure up these things by themselves. They didn't practice, practice, practice. No. They accomplished great things for God because they were dependent upon God, because they trusted in God, and they demonstrated their faith. They were willing to be used by God, even though it looked impossible for it to, to occur. Even ordinary people were able to do great things for God because they had true saving faith in God and his promises. There's nothing extraordinary about anybody on this list, my friends, except they had great faith and they were willing to be used by God. They were willing to be stretched beyond their comfort zone. They were willing to do things for God even if they didn't think in their mind they could do it. My friends, the same is true for you and I today. What separates the ordinary from the extraordinary accomplishment of God is not your ability, but your availability to put your faith into action. That's what separates the doers in the body of Christ and the non-doers in the body of Christ. The doers in the body of Christ say, you know, I've never done that before, but there's a need. And so I'm going to trust that God will equip me for what the need is in the body of Christ. And I'm going to serve in that area. Because I have faith not in me, but in God. And that if he's called me to it, he'll equip me for it. And so my dependency is not upon me. My friends, none of us would serve in the church if it was just our ability. It is strictly God by faith. It's like William Carey, the shoe cobbler. Come on now. You read that paragraph and you think, that is like five lifetimes worth of work from a shoe cobbler. But nothing is impossible with our God. You just have to be willing to utilize your faith and put it into action and be willing to serve and depend upon God. God uses ordinary men and women to accomplish extraordinary things. Here's the second point in, those, in these verses. God used flaw, flawed people. God uses flawed people as a manifestation of his grace. Now, we've talked about their great faith. Well, let me share something else with you about these great men of faith here. Each one of them on this list is deeply flawed. Let's just touch on the highlights of some of these, shall we? Gideon was fearful. He was afraid. When you look at Gideon's life, you not only see a man of great faith, you see a man who experienced periods of very weak faith. But God used him anyway. When the Lord came to him and said, Gideon, mighty warrior, you're going to deliver my people. Do you remember what Gideon's response was? Not, not me. You got the wrong guy, angel of the Lord. You've got the wrong guy. When the men were all gathered for battle with the Midianites, everybody's ready for battle except Gideon. 
Oh, I need a couple more signs here. Oof, not sure. Not sure. He wants some extra insurance from God in the form of miraculous sign. Remember, you're going to put the fleece down. Can you wet that, right? The Lord says, okay, I'll do that. What did he do when the Lord did what, did that? Do you remember what he did next? Well, let's flip it over and see if you can reverse it. Aha! I don't want just one sign. I want you to prove the first sign was legitimate by undoing the first one. And I, Oh, my goodness. Only then did Gideon believe what the Lord told him. But God used him mightily, even with these flaws. And he's not the only one. Look at Barak. Barak lacked confidence. Matter of fact, when you mention Barak's name in Scripture, it's always followed by Deborah. It's not just Barak. It's Deborah and Barak. Deborah was the only female judge of Israel. Why is that? Because the lack of godly men to lead had fallen so far in Israel that the women needed to lead because the men would not fulfill what God had called them to do, even into battle. Now, this is no knock on Deborah. She's clearly a brave and decisive and bold woman. She, she reluctantly judged Israel because none of the men would step up and fulfill their leadership role. A leadership role that God had ordained for them, incidentally. So after 20 years of humiliation and oppression at the hands of the Canaanites, God raises up this prophetess to represent his people. And since Barak commanded the army, Deborah sent for him and told him to go into battle. She even gave him the battle plan from God. All he had to do is rally the troops and go into battle. She said, listen, the victory's already yours. Here's what's going to happen. God has secured the victory, gather the troops, and get it done. Do you remember what his response was? Well, only if you go with me. I'll go, but if you don't go with me, I won't go. I'm sorry, the voice inflection. That's how I picture this story in my head. It's pathetic. My goodness. Very well, Deborah said, I'll go with you. But because of the way that you're going about this, the honor will not be yours. For the Lord will hand Sisera this mighty commander, over to a woman. You remember actually what happened to Sisera when he fled in the battle, right? And J.L. gave him a splitting headache. A splitting headache as she put a tent peg through his skull. Even Deborah, a great leader in her own right, didn't like Barak's uh, response. Now, was Barak a bad guy? No. He was a man of faith. He's in our chapter here, but he was also flawed with his lack of confidence and his timidity when he should have been a strong leader. But God used him mightily to accomplish great things despite his flaws. How about Samson? I mean, Samson is out of control. No man in the Bible started with as much going for them as Samson did. And ended up with less. 
He had it all. Let it all get away from him. It's very impossible. It's very possible, my friends. Note this down: to be empowered by the Spirit of God to do great things, and yet not have your life yielded to the full control of the Spirit, and thus not accomplish what God had accomplished or set aside for you. Samson was a walking contradiction. He was a man of faith with a weakness for women. He was a man of prayer given to uncontrollable fits of anger. He was a man of God who empowered by the spirit, but he often lived by the flesh. He's listed in Hebrew 11 as a man of faith, yet he slept with a harlot. His greatest flaw was that he never, ever learned how to control his passions. He never learned to control his passions, and so ultimately they controlled him. And in the end, his runaway passions just ran away with him. He was a deeply flawed man, just like we are, my friends. He finds himself continually battling anger, illicit desire, runaway passions, He could sometimes do amazing things for God, just like most of us, and then he could turn around and make an incredibly stupid mistake right afterwards, just like most of us. And yet he began to deliver his people from the Philistines, just as the angel of the Lord had said he would in Judges 13. And here he is in Hebrews 11, the great hall of faith. How about Jephthah? Jephthah was foolish. He was foolish. He was from Gilead. He was a mighty warrior. His father was a Gileadite. His mother was a prostitute. Start about not a very promising beginning for this young man. And when he grew up, his own family turned against him. So he ran away and gathered a group of people together. And it became kind of like the mafia, if you will, a group of thugs. It It was a gang. That's Jephthah in our hall of faith. A man with a background who becomes an Old Testament gang leader. (laughs) That's who we got in here. And when the Ammonites attacked, the men of Israel asked Jephthah to come back home and lead them in battle because he was their best warrior and their best chance of stopping this invasion and oppression again. And after some negotiation, he accepted their offer. But then he made a foolish mistake that would haunt him forever, and it's the one we remember about Jephthah, and that is... He vowed that if the Lord would help him win the battle, he would offer to the Lord as an offering the first thing that came through the doors of his house when he returned home from fighting the Ammonites. And to his shock and dismay, what came out of the house was his only daughter, his only child, coming out to welcome him home. And distraught, he tore his clothes in grief. He said, I made an oath to the Lord. I cannot break it. She spends two months in the foothills with her friends. And then the text tells us in Judges 11, verse 39, at the end of the two months, he did to her as he had vowed. She died a virgin. Now, I believe he offered her to the Lord to a life of perpetual virginity, which means that that's the end of the line. He didn't have any sons to carry on his name. He had one daughter, and then he just vowed her to perpetual virginity. That's the end of it. David was a man after God's heart who had great faith, even as a teenager when he defeated Goliath, but then later he commits adultery and then murder to cover his tracks. Samuel was a godly man himself, but he failed to raise his sons in a godly way. They were horrible. 
Although these were all men of great faith, they were also deeply flawed as well. These are seriously flawed men, yet they're in the hall of faith. That should tell you if there's room for them, there's room for us, my friends. There's room for us. Down deep, these were men of faith who believed in God. They were willing to act on what they believed. And their, their faults can't be overlooked. But it didn't keep them out of the hall of faith, did it? How is that even possible? Why would God choose these deeply flawed men to be the examples of great faith? Can't, aren't there any others, Lord, that you could use that don't have these deep flaws? What's the answer to that, beloved? No, 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 no. We're all deeply flawed, and yet God uses us all to accomplish great things for him if we will live our lives by faith. Or as you heard this morning in in Sunday school, if we will walk by faith, we can accomplish great things for God. God used flawed people to demonstrate his grace so that when the victory was won, guess who got the glory? God. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 for just a second. Remember what Paul said? I mean, as I'm reading this chapter, right? This message is going in my head. Lots of Paul verses, Pauline verses keep running through my head as I'm reading these verses. Verse 7, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations for this reason to keep me, chapter 12, verse 7, I'm sorry, to keep me from exalting myself, there has given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord, not once, not twice, but three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, what? My grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weakness, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Gideon was fearful. God used him anyway. Barak was timid, shy, didn't answer his call to be the spiritual leader of Israel. God used him anyway. Samson did a lot of really dumb things. God used him anyway. Jephthah made a huge mistake, a foolish mistake. God used him anyway. My friends, either you believe in the redeeming grace of God or you don't. If we do, then we shouldn't be surprised by anybody's name on here. And we'll be glad they made the hall of faith because that means God can use people like you and I, my friends. Point number three. Here we are, 1147, just like we prophesied earlier. Okay. By faith, our weakness is made strong. One thing on this list is common to everything accomplished by faith. From weakness, do you see that in our verse back there? From weakness, we're made strong. 
Faith requires that we recognize our weakness. But at the same time that we recognize our weakness, faith requires that we lay a hold of God's strength by faith. Did you get that? We got to first recognize that we can't do it all ourselves and that we're not some perfect self-sufficient machine that never makes a mistake and that God can't use us because of something in our past or because we don't think we're gifted in that area or what, whatever the reason is. First, we recognize that we are weak, but then we recognize that we're made strong by laying a hold of God's strength. Remember what Jesus said in John 15, verse 5? Apart from me, you can do nothing. Why does that surprise us, beloved? Because it goes against everything that we hear every day of how self-sufficient we are, how we rely on ourselves, and that we're just so strong. We, We have this vision in our head that we're supposed to be perfect in everything that we do. But you know, when I read through the Bible, and especially in the hall of faith, all I see is imperfect people, deeply flawed people that God used in extraordinary ways. Not because they had some hidden talent, but because they were willing to be used by God. They were willing to recognize their weaknesses and to recognize that the only strength they had was his. God used them in powerful ways because of that. The Apostle Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 3, 5. You could jot this down. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is where? From God. Then next chapter, same thing. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of God will be of God and not from ourselves. That is counterintuitive to everything that you hear today. It is God who accomplished this. And it is faith that was the instrument that God used in these cases. And in all of these instances, the key ingredient was faith. And willing to be used by God. Everyone who did these great things was dependent on God. Now, as we close, I want you to remember this, my friends. It would be wrong to take this text and think that we should just shrug off our flaws and our sins as if they're not a big deal. We should be confronting our sins. We should be growing in holiness and maturity. But this list should encourage us with the fact that God uses imperfect people who will just trust him. That's it. And while we should never justify our sins, you don't have to wait until you're sinlessly perfect to serve the Lord. Because there wouldn't be a single name in here if that were the case. My friends, what are you trusting God for right now that is beyond your comfort zone? Beyond what you think is your human ability? Is it a physical trial that you're facing? Is it an emotional passion that you're having? that you're struggling with in your life? Is it a heart 
They can't seem to focus in on God. What is it that you think? It's just beyond my human ability. Can I tell you something very lovingly? Of course it is. I can do nothing on my own. I can do nothing apart from him. But I can accomplish all things through him. Faith always involves the risk of putting yourself out there in a situation where God may even allow you to fail. It's true. We might not even accomplish what we think we were supposed to accomplish. I'm not telling you you shouldn't prepare or you should be sloppy about planning. But any plan you put together should first be bathed in prayer. and You should start out like this. God, if you don't move in this, if you don't work in this thing, this thing's going to be a colossal failure, and I understand that. And if that's your will, then that's your will. And I trust in you. I realize in my own strength I don't have the ability to be able to do this great thing for you. But I trust in you. And if this is your will, you will make it happen. I just want to be used by you. I want to be an instrument in your hands. It's like Peter stepping out on the boat onto the water. We should be very much aware that if he doesn't hold us, if we take our eyes off of him, we're going to sink pretty quickly. My friends, would you remember these three things? God uses ordinary men and women to accomplish extraordinary things. All of us here are quite ordinary, my friends. I know the world tells us we're special, but we really are just quite ordinary. Secondly, God uses flawed people so that it's a manifestation of his grace in our lives. Thirdly, our weakness is made strong in him and through him. Would you pray with me now that God would accomplish extraordinary things in your life and in this church, not because we did it, but because God did it. Will you pray with me right now as we close in prayer? Let's do that. Heavenly Father, as we go through these names, Lord, it's so striking, the amazing things that were accomplished by faith. Lord, we're only a few chapters into Daniel in the evening service, and we just are amazed at the things that are going on because of the incredible faith of Daniel and his three friends. And we we looked at this text today, Lord, and every single name on here, and even those not mentioned that are just kind of put in a generic category, did amazing things for you. But, Lord, you want to make it very clear that it isn't because of any special skill that they developed it by themselves but rather that you were working in and through them. And because of their faith, you used them in mighty ways. Lord, we want to be we want to be a people like that. We want to be a church like that. Where you do extraordinary things in and through us, not because of anything inherently extraordinary about us, but because you're working in us and through us to accomplish your will. 
And Lord, we yield to your leading by faith. Father, we recognize we are weak, but with you, we are made strong. That's the kind of church we want to be. That's the kind of Christians we want to be. And we want to walk in that truth every day, Lord. Not confidence in ourselves, but confidence in you to accomplish great things in weak, ordinary people just like us. Father, help us this week to pray to that end. You would use us mightily for your honor and your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.